This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. Eighth grade white boys feel powerless. Mm. And messaging that says you're privileged doesn't necessarily hit them right. Right? It makes them feel more powerless or like they're being blamed even though they don't feel like they should be. And then they can log into Reddit or whatever Discord thing they're on or whatever and be told, no, you're the most wonderful person in the world and all these awful liberals are trying to teach you blah, 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 right? Like, and the, the, the quickness with which those messages go to really dark places, like that's one of my biggest worries is like, when are, are these kids going to get like, pushed to that place, right? That like create the, that like scary alt-right racist place because it's someone telling them that like they're powerful, right? And making them feel power in some way. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, an interview show. My name's Nate, and I'm your host. Hey, Doug. Hey, how you doing, Nate? Well, uh, I'll tell you what, man. <laughs> truthfully, like <the> wo- <laughs> truthfully, Nate. <laughs> the world's burning. Like, I'm having this moment where, like, I have colleagues at work who are, like, writing these emails about kids, and I'm like, it's the apocalypse. Like, who cares? <laughs> like, I, I, like, obviously, I care about the kids, but, like, these things that are outside of our control right now, there's no point freaking out about them whatsoever. Like, I have a girl who uh, left UAE, and she's back in Indiana with her family, and she woke up at 3.45 this morning for class and, like, was on class on, online. And I was like, girl, get off, go to bed. Like, the work will always be there. Uh, I'm having one of those moments where, like, I just need to check in with somebody who, like, knows what I'm talking about and is kind of, kind of can see the world the way I see the world. And so I reached out to a friend named Tom. Uh, Tom is the 2015 or 14, Tom? It depends on how where you count it from. How do you want to count it? Let's say fifteen. So for, okay. from the common era, how about that? Yeah. <laughs> in, in Minnesota, we count them one year back. So in Minnesota, I'm fourteen, but the rest of the country, it's fifteen. All right. So Tom is the 2015 Minnesota Teacher of the Year, and so he kind of blazed the trail of being the loudmouth Teacher of the Year uh, the year before I did, and. I use that term loudmouth intentionally. Uh, it's funny when when I was hyping the show, I uh, I use that term online. And uh, Tom, it felt like you were feeling some type of way about that on Facebook. <laughs> I, I really was not. I, I was kind of loving it, but some people got real deep about it. I'm like, man, Tom's Tom's crew is rallying to his defense. And so yeah, yeah, Doug, uh, we're gonna talk to Tom. And uh, at the end, I have some announcements for the show that folks back home will want to listen to. Great. So Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks. I want to talk to you because I think that you and I share a worldview and disposition about a couple of things. Uh, we think that teaching is really, really important and a transformative force in the world. Yes? Yes. Uh, we think that equity and anti-racism in teaching is very important and should be at the forefront of people's practice. Yes. 
we also think say, that a lot of teaching be a yes or no interview. <laughs> well, hold on, but we also think that a lot of teaching and learning that's happening out in schools doesn't meet that rubric and is frankly whack. Correct. And like that's not dunking on fellow teachers, not dunking on the profession. It's just like I think that we both think people can be better. And something that intrigues me is like you're kind of like your brand is kind of like my wife's brand. Uh, I feel like my wife's brand right now is reaching out to thoughtful white folks who have like good, reasonable, like liberal progressive values, and then just encouraging them to to add like anti-racism and like justice to that to that rubric. Would you say that's kind of like where you're coming from with your writing? Uh, I certainly my writing is towards white people in general, um, and I think I kind of I go back and forth between that and then like. Uh, here's the white folks that are just messing it up, right? Like, like, where where can I call out some of the people that like um, that need to get called out? And as a white dude, maybe I can do that in a way that I'm not going to get utterly dismissed or attacked. Um, whatever, yeah. So I, I don't know. It's it. I, I totally get the idea of like you, you want to take people where they're at and then like help bring them forward. And then like, personally, I just don't have the like disposition to always do that and always have the arm around someone. Like sometimes I need to just be like, uh, yo, that's messed up. You can't, you can't do that. Well, but like, I've always seen you as somebody who's essentially like not trying to shame people most of the time, uh, but like are encouraging folks to be better. And this is one of those moments where like, so many things that are inequitable and messed up are like profoundly and demonstrably like even worse inequitable and messed up that this moment I feel like calls for leadership, but at the same time, it calls for folks just trying to like do the job better. I, let me, let me back up a couple, a a little bit. Like, how are you personally just holding up right now with all of this? I mean, uh, two nights ago, I was up until almost five in the morning for no reason. So like about that well. Like I, I go back and forth and like there's moments where I wake up and I'm like, wow, this is this amazing opportunity that we have right now um, to do something interesting and cool. And then other times I'm just like laying on my couch, staring at the ceiling, being like, why are we even pretending that this is teaching right now? Um, and I go back and forth between those two things pretty quickly. No, I had an incident. So for the audience and like for folks uh, who are new to the show, maybe because they follow Tom, uh, I have the privilege of working at an international school here in the Middle East. And my school is a one-to-one school, which means that every kid has a laptop. uh, And we are, we were set up on Google Classroom to begin with. So the transition to online learning has not been flawless, but it's been much better than other folks have had. Uh, There was a moment where a kid was like, Mr. Bowling, I'm not motivated to do any work right now. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I have class every workday at 10 o'clock in the morning online and there's days that I struggle to get out of bed. And the funny part is like once I get out of bed and like sit down at the computer and I'm interacting with students, it's the best part of my day. Yep. But like I, 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 I don't know what the work is for us as teachers and for us as leaders in the profession right now. I, I, I don't know where to start. I was looking at uh, Monique Seward, who's somebody who I think we both know and love. Uh, she's been going off about special ed equity issues uh, during these school closures. And like, she's right. And it's funny because I'm a jerk. And like, I have not been as thoughtful with my platform about issues impacting students' special, special needs. And like, I, the, the, 
before we started rolling, like the point that I made is made to you and the point I kind of want to want to ground this in is that like when it comes to technical technological equity, uh, everything in schools is messed up. When it comes to special ed, everything in schools is messed up. When it comes to testing, everything in schools is messed up. And when it comes to grades, everything in schools is messed up. Where do we as teachers go from there? And like, where do we like, like how, man, I, I need a diary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, and like it's it's messed up, and also it's messed up in in almost like a quieter way now, right? Like the kids that are really that I'm really not reaching right now, and like that really probably need me or someone the most. Um, it's not a disruption in the classroom. It's not a kid with their head down. It's not any of those things. It's just a name that isn't turning things in, or a na- you know, like that kid is just suddenly completely silent, right? Um, and that's been one of my biggest struggles is to like, try to figure out who those kids are. And then like with a, a really massively restricted ability to communicate with those kids, how do I check in with them? How do I make sure they're okay? Right. Um, and I, yeah, so I, all those things that are, that were hard before are like damn near impossible now. Um, and and maybe some of it's that we were getting away with stuff before we shouldn't have, and now it's obvious. Um, and then some of it is just like the time of now. Like, what are what are our expectations now as far as what our kids are really truly going to get from us? What are some of the biggest realizations you've had in this moment of like remote learning, remote teaching about? Like, like what's the what's the biggest glaring uh, hole in the system that's become apparent to you? Um. Man, I mean, there's so many. Um, I, I don't know if this is the answer to your question necessarily, but it like the necessity of relationships, as much as that was like such a the the buzzwordy, easy answer to every problem before, is like build relationships, build relationships, and and when it feels like a pause button got hit on our relationships, so that. Um, it's that much harder to be able to build them, right? Like it's it's the importance of all those moments in the day that weren't like a moment that I was delivering instruction or like facilitating learning, um, that all those moments were actually like crucial to what we were doing. And mm-hmm. I don't know that we recognize them as such. Yeah, I've been... I have been thinking a lot about how the teachers who I'm seeing thrive at this online teaching thing are people who have established relationships with uh, students in their classrooms and also people who are like willing to hand over control of the discourse to their students. And the folks who are struggling is like team lecture. And like, I just, I, I, I can't imagine how somebody could go into the situation and walk out the same teacher they are uh, when they walked into it. I remember thinking about this back in 2018 when we had a strike in Washington State or in Tacoma, at least where I was from. Uh, there was a big like outrage that if teachers were on strike, that means students weren't going to get fed because yeah. like a lot of kids get their breakfast and lunch from school. And like I, I'm sitting here trying to think about what energy am I putting into a lesson that I'm teaching online for AP government politics when I should be putting all that energy actually into dismantling the systems that mean that, that cause kids to need to get two of their meals a day from public school. And it leads me to this point where I feel like, so you've been a teacher leader and an advocate online and in the real world for the last five, six years, I've been doing the same thing. What, 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 what is, what work is ahead of us when we get back to school? Like, 
or even if we do get back to normal. Like I, I'm, I'm struggling right now with trying to think about what teachers out there should be doing in order to, to meet students where they are with the idea that like the world is going to be fundamentally changed uh, from, from, this, from this virus and this outbreak. Yeah, I mean, it starts with like, what are we doing now, right? Like what, um, I don't know, there's this, there's this, a huge part of me is just like, look, we're all, anyone who's out there right now saying like, man, I'm succeeding at this distance teaching thing, like, I just don't trust. And anyone who's trying to sell, <laughs> like, anyone who's trying to sell like, hey, here's the, right, all the, all the like, all the people trying to sell us shit before are now trying to sell us new shit of like, but here's how distance learning works and here's how distance teaching works. And like, no one knows. And like, um, so like those voices, especially like those outside the classroom, like whatever super branded, like ed celeb people, like I got no time for them in this moment to try to tell me what's going on. Um, so this is part of me. It's like, whatever anyone's doing good for you, like it's hard and we're trying. And then, but also like, how do we also raise the, 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 the floor of that right like to there is no perfect but like man are you checking in on your kids on an emotional level um are you looking at you know who's engaging and who's not are we thinking about like what do kids most actually need from a teacher voice in their lives right now um and you know it's it's hard not to do that in a way that's going to make people feel like man i can't do more than i'm doing uh all of that is the same discussion we were having before again, right? Like, Oh, you were lecturing kids and giving out packets and whatever. And like, that didn't mean you weren't necessarily like a good person that was trying hard, but did I believe you could do something better and more with the time you had in your class with your kids? Like, yes, I wanted you to do more and better. Um, and now I think that's like, that's being highlighted so much. We're like really in the middle of a, like a global pandemic when you, we don't know what's going on with our kids and where they're at, like you're just going to give them like eight pages of worksheets a day. Um, it, in what way is that going to help that student? Right. Or most students. What does your day look like right now? Like what's your remote learning setup? Uh, my, so I have a district that's, uh, this has not been true of most years I've taught, but like I have a district right now that I can brag on like crazy and like my, really love my leaders and I really love my like superintendent down. They've worked really hard to be like, how do we make this rational both for our kids and for you as an instructor? So um, they want us to be online like four hours a day, uh, just available to kids, right? So I do a couple like half hour open office hours on like Google Meets a day which is mainly just like the same six kids in the morning and then a different six kids in the afternoon that just like come and like hang out and play hangman and like, <laughs> like talk about how much they love yogurt. And like, because we just like hang out. Right. And I think it's that again, like you were saying, like it's the best part of my day in a lot of ways. I feel like this is something these kids are needing if they're willing to like, you know, call their teacher on Google meets and hang out for half an hour a day. Like <laughs> must be serious. Um, so it's that. And then I have a student teacher that I'm in contact with like all day long. And we are just kind of like, we're emailing kids or setting up Google meets with kids or chatting with them or whatever. And just making sure that we're checking for kids that are, if there's kids that aren't engaging, that we're not like 
hey where's your work from yesterday but it's like hey are you doing okay or can i do anything for you or whatever so it's a lot of just like one-on-one individual conversations my my students are working on a project right now where like we just wanted them to take something that they care about and share their perspective with that thing so like i have a student that's working really hard on a podcast about sharknado 2 um (laughs) which i'm like really excited about um and then like and you know like other students like making uh they're doing like one student's doing like a blog series of like hey if you really love sports here's how to enjoy them even though you can't be around people right now and like they're all doing a million different projects but like so i'm just kind of like individually helping coach them through those right now that's I forget you teach middle school sometimes. And yeah, like, it's, just a different, it's a different existence. Oh like, yeah, like Sharknado. I'm like, wait, what? But yeah, it's a different existence. It, de- it very um, much is. Yeah. L- let's put the the, the current capa- sorry the current catastrophe to the side for a little bit and talk about your writing and advocacy. Uh, I'm trying to think of the first time I came across some of your writing, and I don't actually remember the first occasion, but I've always been struck by how vulnerable you are as a writer. Uh, the way that you write, do you, are you, what are you trying to do with the pieces that you write? Like, what are you trying to communicate to the audience most of the time? Uh, I guess I'll say like, if, if I'm ever writing a piece where I have a goal of like, here's what I'm trying to communicate to the audience, then I usually that piece sucks. Mm -hmm. Um, so like I have this like weird pit in my stomach that I feel like I can feel the, this like certain kind of discomfort when I'm telling an honest truth that's hard to tell, right? And so, like, I try to make sure that if I'm writing something, that, like, that's the feeling I have. Um, what, what's an example of that? Like, a, an honest truth that's hard to tell? Um, I mean, like, you know, a lot of my writing is about times that I've failed. Because I really try not to sell, like, here's this great thing, right? Um, and so, you know, writing about mistakes that I've made with kids that have made them really upset that I realized like I messed that up really big um, or I don't understand this thing or like, Hey, I, I know I talk a lot about how much I love teaching, but like, good God, I really want to quit today. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I guess it's just like, I'll say it like in the same way, like whenever anyone has approached me with like, Hey, it'd be really cool if you wrote an article about this. Like I, I can't, do that people like really good people can and i love them for it but like i don't write assignments very well um i I it has to be a piece of like this is the thing that i'm truly like struggling with and working with right now personally so i think about your journey as a teacher leader i think about you being uh named teacher of the year in minnesota which like you're coming from the twin cities which is a, a fairly simple like proxy for seattle and tacoma where i'm from and I think about the way you've used your platform over the last few years. I think about your advocacy. And sometimes I'm left to wonder, like, to what extent are we who have these beliefs talking to each other versus to what extent are we, like, actually moving the needle in the profession? Do you think that, like, the quality of teaching and learning and, like, professionalism and advocacy in the profession has changed uh, over the last few years? Uh, yeah, like, so the the good news is yes, I think. Like, I think especially the, like, the equity anti-racism wing of things, which, um, you know, is not work that 
I lead or was anywhere near starting, right? Like that's work I joined late in the game. And there are people that have been like truly building that platform up for a long time. Um, you know, they have, there's no finish line and we certainly haven't gotten close to like where we're like, cool, this is great what's happening now. Um, but like are teachers more likely to be doing that work in some way now than they were before? Yes. You know, um, I think where like when I started teaching 14, 15 years ago, uh, it was it was much more like a novelty to find a place that was doing that work. And it was a lot more like uh, risky and, and whatever. Now you see people that are making that's what they make their money doing. Right. Like mm-hmm. in a bad way, but also it's a sign that like it has become this mainstream idea to at least be talking and working about, through that. Right. Um, so yes, I do see that. And I do see that like, you know, some pieces that I've written that have done really well, you know, are being read in schools all over the place or are being used in colleges. And, um, I don't know that that would be a situation that was, would have been true again 15 years ago like the that that message that conversation people are looking to have that conversation well the i do often wonder like within like the the twitter sphere of ed people and whatever like it feels like there are like two percent of all teachers in the country that are truly engaged in that um and we're all arguing with each other sometimes like really extensively uh Mm -hmm. But then um, no one, like a lot of people aren't engaged in that, you know, conversation, right? Kind of like political policy, right? Like there's like the hyper-informed people that are having all these like really big debates about this, all these individual things that are happening. And most of the country is aware of like who president good, who president bad. And like, that's <laughs> like, so, you know, so I think like when you look at online, like the, you know, the, whether it's the reform community or it's the research community or it's the anti-racism community or whatever it is like there's kind of these like weird like battles going on among all those i think the average teacher doesn't care about that and doesn't know that it's happening um that's just like for a few of us that can't think about anything else all day the connection you just made should have been apparent to me earlier but it actually wasn't uh i've been really fascinated watching the like so I'm of the belief that the the left, whatever the left means in politics is right on policy, but like deadly wrong at the politics. And I think there's no better like model of that than like Bernie Sanders policies are like more popular and actually pull better now than ever. But Bernie Sanders won fewer states this time around than last time around. And I think like Michigan's the example that really sticks in my craw that like Sanders. So turnout in Michigan was 300,000 people higher than it was in 2016 and 2020. And Sanders won the state in 2016 and lost it in 2020. I say all that to say that when you talk about like the, the the fractures within the ed community and the ed conversation, I oftentimes wonder like, are we actually convincing people to embrace our worldview, or are we just like scratching each other's back and like like big up in each other like, hey, you've done a really good job with that. I, yeah, great article, great article. Like, to what extent are we actually changing minds? Do you have any experiences where like you've had somebody talk to you or come to you and talk about how you changed your mind? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think probably the most meaningful piece for me for that was was my book. Like, I, I that's just maybe where people have given the most feedback from. I'm so, going to pause you here. Be a good capitalist. Plug your book, please. Oh, um, <laughs> it's called. It won't be a capitalism because I don't really make that much money off of them. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's called. It won't be easy. Uh, the original title to the book was Welcome to the Shit Show. Uh, and that's still the first chapter of the book. Um, so that's, I kind of have to put that out there. But so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a teacher book, but it's almost more memoir. It's a lot more of like, here's the things I've struggled with and thought about. And just like some ways to kind of think about approach being a teacher. It's not like a book of, it's not a how-to with answers and whatever. Um, that said, I think like what I've gotten from a lot of teachers from it is that they especially felt pretty isolated in their building being especially like a white teacher who was interested in anti-racism or is interested in like uh, kind of like a student's first um, approach to teaching. And we're surrounded by a lot of more like kind of old school again, like, uh, what you call like team lectures, what you said before, like, you know, like, yeah, team yeah, lecture, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like kind of surrounded by, by team lecture and feeling like they were alone and they couldn't necessarily make those moves. And then through reading my book, feeling like a lot less isolated in those ideas and feeling a lot more push of like, Oh, it could go even further than what I'm thinking of right now. Um, and then helping like having that actually help transform what their practices. Um, but for me, it's so much more like, I think where I've backed off from a lot of the like really broad scale. So like there's, to me, there's no win for me engaging in like charter versus public school arguments, right? Like I've tried to just, cause one, I don't care. Um, but two, like that's 10 people in the country screaming at each other back and forth. Um, for me where the work is, is, uh, individual, like teacher to teacher talking. Right. And so like, I think more of my pieces now are about like, this is the conversation I would have with you if me and you were out for a drink talking about our practices, like, and that I think is where like growth and change comes from. Um, yeah, to, to, like, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of talk right now and I love it of like, Hey, when this whole thing is done, think about how different education is going to be, right? Uh, which might be true on that teacher level, but I don't see where anything that's happening right now is changing any of the power structure involved in how education is. So I'm not sure how much is going to change. For sure, right? <laughs> I, I think I think we'll take a break here, and when we come back, I want to kind of I want to dig into how you became an anti-racist teacher and like how that journey worked for you where you began and how you've reached the point you're at right now so we'll be back hi this is Nate Bowling host of the channel 253 podcast nerd farmer and proud Alaska Airlines MVP you know I love Alaska Airlines but it's not just me recently Condon S traveler named Alaska the best US airline and this is the second year in a row so for the last two years, a travel magazine, folks who should know, have given top marks to Alaska Airlines. What do you think put Alaska over the top? In-flight messaging or movies on your phone on select flights? The outstanding customer service? The seller mileage program where you actually get rewarded for the miles you fly, not just dollars you spend? My vote? The signature fruit and cheese platter and the Northwest craft beers. For your next trip, 
don't even visit the travel sites. Just skip them and go to alaskaair.com and make your flight with the best U.S. airline. Thank you, Alaska, for your sponsorship of Channel 253, and congratulations. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show. Uh, Channel 253 is a local podcast network who are telling stories and giving points of view about things in the world you won't hear elsewhere. We try to have a local lens on our conversations and make sure we're telling you stories worth caring about that impact the local community in Tacoma. And I'm able and blessed with my vantage point here in UAE to bring other voices and other stories. And so if you believe in this work and want to support it, uh, you can join Channel 253 as a member. As a member, you get member-only benefits. For example, our members got access to a special bonus episode uh, last week. Uh, go to channel253.com slash membership and join, please. It is $4 a month or $40 a year. Uh, speaking of things we do on the network, I finally want to announce uh, the long-awaited next edition of the Nerd Farm Reads Book Club. We're going to be reading at Hallie Kennedy's recommendation, Know My Name by Chanel Miller. Uh, I want to make sure that I say her name first. Uh, Chanel Miller was the victim of a sexual assault by Brock Turner. You may remember the story. Brock Turner was the privileged prick uh, at Stanford who was... Uh, who basically sexually assaulted uh, Chanel Miller, and she went through the trial, the trial as a Jane Doe, uh, but she decided that she wants to reclaim her story and wrote a book, a memoir called Know My Name, and we're going to read that book uh, as our next Nerd Farmeries book club. We're recording this episode today on April, I should have checked my time in advance, April 15th. Uh, it's going to come out on the following Monday. You're going to have about a month to read this book. As you're reading it, please, please, please uh, tweet about it using hashtag Nerd Farm Reads. And you can order the book online from King's Books. Sweet people love your business. And so the next Nerd Farm Reads book club is Know My Name by Chanel, by, uh, Chanel Miller. All right, Tom, back to the conversation. Tom, something I'm curious about is, when I watch your advocacy and writing is, is that you don't have to do this. Like, I'm a black male who grew up in the United States and taught at a school that was 80% students of color. And so, like, if I'm not an anti-racist advocate on behalf of my students, why am I in the business in the first place? What was your, I assume that you didn't start like your career this way 15 years ago, what was your path into being an advocate, uh, an anti-racist advocate? Um, I mean, I think it really started like in college. So this is, yeah, I'm trying to like shorten my answer because I'm, I'm working on a second book right now. And this is the chapter that I'm working on is like what it, what it is to be surrounded by white folks and, and how that impacts us. But like I, I met a kid in college, who was a DJ in a rap group um, and was a white kid and me and him hit it off and ended up living together for a couple of years. And he, me and him would just have these like big long discussions about it. Like what it means to be a white dude for him to be like a white dude doing a black music and like to be in a black cultural space and how, how aware of it he was and like where he felt the lines of like where he could like, where he would, be really interested in like doing something and being like, I want to make innovative music, but also like there's a level to which it's not my place to like push rap music outside of like where it comes from. Right. Um, and so like, I was this like white kid from the Wisconsin suburbs, which are like maybe the whitest possible place in the world. Um, just like culturally speaking, Wisconsin is, is profoundly white. Uh, 
not that Minnesota's like better, but like, uh, <laughs> and, and so, right. Like, so for me, I think it was like this, this whole conversation, one, just like all these ideas about what it means to be like a, a white dude in the world. And also just like, uh, what it meant to be a white person aware of and talking about race, even when people of color weren't around. Right. And for, I, I I've been reflecting on that friendship for a long time because like, there's not a lot of uh, mentors out there that would have been showing me that at that time, right? Um, and from there, like when I, I went and got my teaching license and I worked at my first school that I worked at was a, a racial desegregation school. And so like anti-racism was a piece of our curriculum. And we did a lot of, um, we worked a lot with the Pacific Education Group doing like courageous conversations work. Uh, and again, like lucked into the eighth grade at that time had started doing this whole th- like third quarter unit on race and privilege. And it was the English and social studies department together. And, uh, me and the social studies teacher would open the wall between our two rooms and have this class of 60 kids and basically run these huge discussions about race. Um, and I really came to it like the first time I went to like, say like the courageous conversations, like training, um, or what's it, beyond diversity is what it's called. Right. So I went to beyond diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I left kind of being like, eh, I don't know. Like, and, and like really approaching it intellectually and, and trying to like pull apart the arguments of why it's not really like, like that and whatever. And then that first spring when my students started talking about it was like to me that's that's the like the defining moment of I thought I was going into education because I wanted to teach young writers and young artists like that's what I cared about and in that spring listening to especially like these my like young black kids talking about their experiences not just in like the outside world but in the school that I was currently teaching in that was theoretically this big anti-racist school um that was, I think, like the moment where I steered hard down that other path of like, um, holy shit, there's a lot of work that we need to do here. And I and recognizing that I was only at the very, very beginning of that journey, right? That I had like a lot of learning to do. Um, and there was a few students along the way the first couple of years um, who very thankfully were willing to like check me pretty often and be like, uh, no, that thing you just said was messed up. Uh, actually, no, you're doing this completely wrong. Um, and like, yeah, kind of moved me down that path. How do you feel like that you're building capacity for yourself to continue doing this work? Because one of the worst things that happens is that somebody who's engaging in this work at the level you're engaging in, uh, they burn out. Like, I, I feel like mid-career educators either burn out or disengage from the work. How How do you maintain your focus on the work and making sure this anti-racist work is at the center of your practice. Yeah. I mean, there's a, so like all that was when I was like a, I don't know if the, like a private educator, right? Like I, I taught, I went home and that's what I did. Right. Like my writing was outside of education, didn't have anything to do with education. Um, and then since then, you know, like in the last five or six years or whatever it is, as I've become more and more public, I've certainly, I have this idea and I'm not sure if it's just like me bullshitting myself, but like, that I would have triple the Twitter followers right now if I didn't talk about race, right? Like it, there's a, there's a path to go on. 
especially as a white dude of just being like, you know, the, the, the piece I have that has done the best I've ever written was a piece that was just like, man, teaching's hard. Yeah. That, that was the whole thesis of the piece. And that was pretty much how it said. And like, that's the one that's got the like, whatever, like half a million views at this point or whatever. Like, um, and I could have just done that. And there's a bunch of people that do that. And it, there's a, a lot of recognition in that. Um, that said, I also probably have an outsized like following and level of influence being a white dude doing anti-racist work as well. Right. So like I, nothing I say for the most part is original. I'm just a white guy saying it. And so that makes some people like it or feel more comfortable with it. Um, or whatever. So like, there's kind of tensions all over of like, I, 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 I don't want to put it down. Like I, I, I can't feel myself putting that work down. Right. Like the, the guilt that I would feel being like, I'm just out for me and what, what, you know, I'm going to make a book that's going to sell a bajillion copies. Cause it's all going to be about teachings hard and here's how to do it best and whatever. Um, With an eye patch. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean like those dudes, right? Like I called out the pirate dudes this week and like the, it's, you know, like that, if someone would have come 10 years ago and offered me a book deal to talk about how great of a teacher I was with a cool branded, whatever, based on what I looked like, I, I would have gone vegan and started jogging and I could have been a, you know, like a pirate writer and that would have been depressing. Um, but like, like it's the, like that path is there. I don't know. But like, I also don't want to be Tim Wise, you know, like I also don't want to be like the white dude who's out giving talks and teaching about anti-racism. And that's my whole like mode and career. And that's my money making. Like, I don't, I don't really want to make money off of a system that already is benefiting me um, more than it should. Right. So like there's all these tensions all over. And so like, um, that's where I think I go back to like that. Am I saying something? Cause I feel like I need to say it. Then that's what I'm going to write about and, and not worry about where it's necessarily going to land. And so like, sometimes that means I write things that make people really fucking pissed. And sometimes that means I write things that don't do anything. And, and that's just, I guess, okay for me. Um, I still consider my main work to be like the work that I'm doing every day in my classroom. So I think maybe that's where I, for me, the the burnout is not coming from the advocacy because because um, that's not like the central that's like the central part of who I am. Mm. Like in a central way, if all that went away, if I wrote a piece that finally pissed off the wrong couple people and I got like utterly shut down somehow, and no one's going to publish anything anywhere. Like I get to go teach the next day, so that's okay one of the factors that you have in your life that I don't have in my life is that you're raising what appears to me to be one of the quirkiest, but like coolest kids on the planet. Uh, how has being a parent changed your advocacy and the work that you do? Like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how, like we, we basically maintain a pretty similar schedule. Like there were a lot of events we showed up at the same time. Like, how do you, how, how do you fit raising a sentient human being into all of this as well? Yeah, it's, that's, not easy um and basically you just you just uh tagged in that like that's book two right now that's that's all about 
that's what I'm writing about is like how raising my kid has impacted me and, and impacted my teaching. And, and like uh, a lot of people that do it have a partner that is always home with the kid. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's kind of being out and being at conferences and stuff like that. That's kind of what I've seen. Um, and that's not my case. Like uh, my wife is amazing and she's a sex therapist and she uh, also, she, her book came out two weeks after my book came out uh, because we're really good family planners. Uh, and <laughs> like, she's, she, she's way cooler in her realm than I am in mine. And like, is this like amazing person doing all this stuff? Right. Um, so the amount of planning that we have to do of like, Oh, you're going to be off doing this. So I got to be home for this. Um, that's really, really big. That's a huge part of it. Um, and the rest of it is just like, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think you have, um, hobbies. Yeah. Yeah. Like you like go to sports games and stuff. Uh, and I I guess occasionally like probably hang out with friends and whatever. (laughs) Uh, that's, I don't, uh, that's what I don't do. Like, which is, I, I'm fine to give up a lot. Now, now my kid's nine and is old enough that like we get to go do stuff together a lot more. And like, um, but yeah, I mean like it's, you know, the kid comes first and then it's like everything else shortly thereafter. But it certainly is a whole other, there's a lot of things, especially like, so like during my teacher of the year year, I got asked to do a ton of stuff and the agreement was kind of, that was my year to really run with it. So I got to say yes a lot. Um, the years after that, um, I said no to a bunch of stuff, right? Like, because my wife was doing a ton more. Um, and then I was kind of with the kid a lot more. And now it's just like a balance of like, I say no to more than I would like to. Um, and I know there's a ton more work out there. And um yeah, it's just like a, a crazy balance behind it all. And also, like, my kid drives a lot of it now, right? So, like, my work in the last three years, I moved districts. Um, and the district I work in now, uh, how much time do we have? This is kind of a long story. You have as much time as you need, man. Okay. <laughs> so, like... I did all this school switching uh, for different reasons. I kind of got run out by a couple principals who didn't like that when they Googled the school name, my name came up before theirs. Um, and so like they shut down all my stuff so that uh, whatever, they wanted to be the ones. So whatever, I got moved around, I got pushed out. I ended up back in my original middle school, which had since switched districts. So I was a first year teacher um, in the district. At the end of the year, I got cut as a, first year teacher right so a school reached out to me um with a job opening and it was the school so like that's the district i now work in um that school shares a parking lot with the police department responsible for killing philando castillo so like it was that city's police department where that happened um and the school is has like a very one of the EAs the first year always described it to me as being like old school white. Um, so, so like it's this small community right outside of Minneapolis, um, but feels like a small town sometimes. And there's 
a lot of like, especially white families that have been there for like four or five generations and like whose parents went to this middle school, whose grandparents went to this middle school, sometimes whose parent is a teacher in the school, like that like sense of like distinct ownership. Um, And then there's also this, uh, a really large like Tibetan population and uh, an increasing population of kids of color. And so like when the Philando stuff happened, the school, like racial tension in the school was like kind of all time high. And the principal called me and was just like, we need someone who's able to, to like help navigate this for the kids. Right. Like, and especially like we would love to bring in someone who is a white male who can help model what allyship looks like to white males. Right. So my, my work switched from mostly like more urban schools that had uh, almost like my, the high school I I taught in was I think like 65 or 70% African-American kids. Um, Now my school is 65% white kids. Um, And it's been like, so what, what do you do in that space for kids that might be like really conservative um, or who have families that are really conservative, um, you know, that have the back the blue yard sign uh, out there. Like, how do you maintain a space where those kids, you're not trying to like, I'm not trying to like change their mind. I'm not trying to like make them into little like, you know, liberal mini me's. Um, but I am trying to make it so that they can be in the classroom with these other kids um, and like respect and learn from one another. Right. So like in the midst of all that, I have this like little white kid. And so I've been thinking a lot about like, how do I raise a white kid in this world in a way that is like aware and responsible um, while constantly being called out on like my own um, what's the hypocrisy, right? Like, I know systematic answers that are better from an anti-racist point of view, but then if I get called out on like, but am I going to make that call for my personal own kid who might need a different thing? Right. Like, does that make sense? Yeah. But without spoiling your next book, yeah. how, how does one do that? Um, Cause here, let me, so let me, here's where I'm coming from is that like, I have stood in front of audiences and shown them maps of segregated neighborhoods and uh, told audiences that if your school you're sending your kid to is whiter than the neighborhood you live in, you are a driver of school segregation right. and have like, I've, I've had audiences turn on me. And like, I, I spent basically the last part of 2019 when I was in the States uh, touring the country and uh, t- telling people the Overton window was wide open, was, was wide open, and ending my talks by showing pictures of Charlottesville and talking about like Nazis, you know, Nazis organizing. Like I took this to ACD conferences and real estate conferences. Like that's that's what I was putting in front of people. Uh, I had a woman walk out of a talk. Actually, I had an entire table walk out of a talk from Texas. Uh, so, like talking on that system level, you do the system work how do you do it on that interpersonal level with your kid? Because like, I, I'm not a genius, but if racism wasn't good for white folks, they wouldn't do it. 
So like engaging in and maintaining a racist system actually benefits, would like maintaining a, a racial system would actually benefit your family. Uh, how do you, how do you find that balance? Right. And, and the messaging that those kids are getting is super like eighth grade white boys feel powerless mm-hmm. and messaging that says you're privileged doesn't necessarily hit them right right it makes them feel more powerless or like they're being blamed even though they don't feel like they should be and then they can log into reddit or whatever discord thing they're on or whatever and be told no you're the most wonderful person in the world and all these awful liberals are trying to teach you blah 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 right like and the 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 quickness with which those messages go to really dark places. Um, you know, like that's the, the, like, that's one of my biggest worries is like, when are, are these kids going to get like pushed to that place? Right. That like create that, that like scary alt-right racist place because it's someone telling them that like they're powerful, right. And making them feel power in some way. Um, so that's hard because I also want them to understand like the reality of the world. So like, um, you know, a lot of the the push that I get is you shouldn't be talking about race in class because if you talk about race in school, um, you know, it's going to push, then it makes this kid feel bad and then they don't feel welcome in class anymore. And then blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's hard. Like that's the balance. Um, and individually, like I messed that up a lot my first couple of years and I'm still messing it up. Like it's definitely like the work in progress piece of my teaching. And I think about it constantly. Um, and like, like everything else, it starts with that relationship, right? Like, can you connect with that kid on some level? Um, I found that like listening is far more important than talking, which is stupid. And I should have known that my first year of teaching, but like, I think there's this, this piece of me that, that that bought I guess what is like I, I have expectations of white men that I needed to like slow down for white boys mm. right for a white man I want to be like you're a grown ass man in the world you should understand A, B, and C about the world and you should have gotten through this and like I'm not worried about your feelings right now right that's probably an unfair expectation to have for like a 13 year old boy to be like own your privilege and shut up and like, like that's, 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 that's not helpful or good. Right. Um, at the same time, like if those kids are saying things that are deeply harmful to the kids around them, you have to call them out on it. Right. And so there's a lot of times where it's like, Oh, I'm building with this kid. I'm doing well with this kid. Oh, now I have to have this conversation where I tell this kid that they, stepped over the line and did something offensive. Now I lost that kid for the next month. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I just, I try my best. I try my best to understand where they're coming from and the messages they're hearing and why those messages are appealing to them. Um, and then a lot of it is like skill building that doesn't need to necessarily get framed in race at the, at the beginning. Right. If you're teaching critical thought and you're quick, teaching empathy and you're teaching the ability to like look for absent narratives um that's skills that are going to help kids find 
what they're missing right now without having to like hit them over the head with and here's why white privilege is putting you where you are um and then you know i also get to talk as a white guy so like when we talk about white privilege um or we talk about systemic racism i can talk about my grandparents that came back from world war ii went to college on the gi bill got you know home mortgages to buy their first houses and start building generational wealth that were not available to people of color in our country. And because of that, I had a small fund, but like I had some extra money when I went to college, right? Like that's not because my grandparents didn't work hard. And it's not because I, you know, I didn't get that money for college because I signed a checkbox that said, I hate black people. Like, I got it because the system was set up for me to get it, right? So, like, I can center my own story at times, which I think is helpful. Um, but, yeah, it's nothing I I have. Uh, I haven't figured out, like, the right answer yet. I just know it's the, the questions I'm asking every day. I had a staff meeting this week, and staff meetings over Google Meets are fascinating experiences <laughs> where uh, they were talking about the first day of school in aspirational terms. Like if we're back in August and if there's school in August and if we're in the building in August. And that was something that like, that kind of stopped me in my tracks. Whenever we go back to school, um, how is your, what are you taking from this experience? How's your teaching going to be different uh, before this outbreak to now or to then? Man. Um, I think I'm learning the power. Uh, I mean, like, as if I didn't know before, like I'm loving how individual I can make things right now. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm loving how, how much like really immediate individual feedback for stuff is important. I'm also finding it really cool and interesting how different kids are reacting to different kinds of communication. So at school, it's so easy to, pull a kid aside and talk to them. Right. Um, but also like, maybe I should be trying emailing those kids. Maybe we should try doing a, you know, like maybe I should be at, at home every once in a while and be like, cool, let's jump on a Google meet. Cause that's more comfortable for you. Like, and, and spreading those things out a little bit. Um, I think that's more like interactional things during the day that are going to be the most important. Um, as far as like curriculum wise uh, and stuff like that, like I think like most of us, I think I'm going through this, this process right now of looking at, looking at my fourth quarter curriculum and being like, cool, I might be able to get through an eighth of that before school ends this year. Right. Like it, it is all slowed down. So what are the most important skills and things I want kids to have from me right now? Um, and I think going back to school, that's the framework I want to keep, right? Like, I don't want there to feel like there are wasted days or wasted lessons. That doesn't mean they can't be fun days. It doesn't mean we can't be connecting. It doesn't mean it's just going to be all like, you know, all about, it's not like the rigor is not the word I'm going for, but like importance is right. Like, um, if we only have this time right now together, what's the best thing we can be doing with that time? No, that's real. That's real. Uh, We tend to end the show with a thing called the wind down. 
And so the wind down is your opportunity to, t- to tell folks uh, what somebody they should be listening to. And it could be like a music artist, a uh, another teacher out there whose voice matters, a podcast, uh, an author. So who's somebody or something that folks listening to this should be listening to as well? I can't do teacher stuff right now for sure. I don't know what like when I'm when I'm walking away from that, I'm walking away for good. Um so I don't know. Uh my favorite podcast, generally speaking, is Reply All. Uh and they did an episode like pre-COVID-19 called The Missing Hit. That's all about this dude who had a song stuck in his head from 20 years ago, but he couldn't find it anywhere. And so based on what his memory of the song is, they put together uh, a whole bunch of studio musicians and recreated the song, trying to make it show up on like one of those music recognition apps. Uh, (laughs) And uh, it it, like goes from there and it's like amazing. So go find that episode of that podcast. I would say it's a good, like, it's a good escape. All right. Yeah. My escape right now is uh, Narcos on Netflix and uh, I'm, I've played three seasons of uh, FIFA 19 on my career mode. Like I, I once class is over, I'm like, I, I'm not thinking pedagogy either. Uh, if people want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? So M-R-T-O-M-R-A-D, Mr. Tom Rad, that's me on everything. So uh, Twitter is the main thing I actually do. There is an Instagram, but it's basically, it's just pictures of my dog. Um, I have a website, mrtomrad.com, where a lot of my older writing is. Um, yeah. Tom, I look forward to getting fired from a consulting gig with you again in the near future. Oh, that was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Wakanda forever, y'all. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Yeah. Oh, by the way, wait, Tom, one thing you should know is that Doug is a, uh, is Doug basically has a unifying doom theory yeah. about the entire world uh, ending it's, with the rise of fascism. It, it's coming and together. Climate change. It's really yeah, coming yeah, together. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounders B Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.